Hey everyone, John Heilman here and welcome to Hell and High Water, my podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio, with big ups to the one and only RZA for our dope theme music. It has been a mind-boggling, head-spinning, jaw-dropping couple of weeks in American life. Two weeks ago we had the insurrection, last week we had the impeachment, and this week, coming up, we have the inauguration. And as we were thinking about who we'd want to have on the podcast this week, it suddenly occurred to me that the perfect person is someone who I have known for a very long time, a guy who has been at the nexus of politics and policy in government and academia for four decades, really maybe five, uh, and a rare person in American life who is not just brilliant, not just accomplished, not just with a resume as long as your arm, but also someone who is deeply, profoundly wise except in his choice of friends, because this person also happens to be an old and dear friend of mine. And that person would be former Secretary of Labor, Robert Reich. The State of the Union is shitty, and I'll tell you why. Because nobody knows what's going on. Nobody has any sense of any direction or leadership. Donald Trump seems to be fading, but we have no idea whether he's going to explode or explode anybody else. Uh, And, you know, everybody is suffering from COVID and kind of trauma. From, uh, from everything that's going on. So uh, why, how, this is awful. It's awful. Just awful. So I mentioned that Bob Reich's resume runs about as long as your arm, and that would really only be true if your arms were like the length of Kevin Durant's. If you look at the uh, Goldman School of Public Policy website at the University of California, Berkeley, this is the first paragraph you read about Bob Reich. Robert B. Reich is currently Carmel P. Friesen's professor of public policy at the Goldman School of Public Policy at the University of California, Berkeley, and a senior fellow at the Bloom Center for Developing Economies. He has served in three national administrations, including as Secretary of Labor under President Bill Clinton. He has written 18, count them, 18 books. I put the count them in there, including the bestsellers, The System, Who Rigged It? How We Fix It? That's the newest book. The Common Good, Saving Capitalism, Aftershock, Supercapitalism. And The Work of Nations, which has been translated into 22 languages. He is the co-creator of the 2017 Netflix original documentary, Saving Capitalism, and the award-winning 2013 film, Inequality for All. He's the co-founder of Inequality Media, co-founder of the Economic Policy Institute, and co-founding editor of the American Prospect, also a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. That's the first paragraph, and it goes on for a while after that. And as I look at that resume, I really want to focus on a couple of important things before we get to this podcast, one of which is... The period in which I actually got to know Bob, which was in the late 1980s when he was at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard, where I was a graduate student. And the book I mentioned there at the end called The Work of Nations, which was the book that was in a string of books that Bob wrote as a young professor were incredibly influential in democratic policy circles. But The Work of Nations was the most influential by far because it became kind of the template for Bill Clinton's economic policy in 1992 when he ran for president and won. Bob went into the Clinton administration and became, by a lot of people's views, one of the great cabinet secretaries in the history of the country, and then left and began the second kind of phase of his life, going back to Massachusetts, left Harvard, went to Brandeis, and then ran for governor of Massachusetts in 2002 and became the first gubernatorial candidate really in the country to endorse same-sex marriage, came in second in the Democratic primary, did not get the nomination. The person who did went on to lose to Mitt Romney and then eventually got lured to the West Coast, as all great people do eventually at some point in their lives and went out to Berkeley in 2006. Also, importantly, in 2006, Bob was the celebrant at my wedding. I can't really tell you which I think is more important in my life. I think really the wedding was more important. But for Bob, maybe moving to California was more important. And it was the moment where also Bob began his long arc, his long transition from being kind of the guy who was at the center of Clintonomics to being maybe the most influential exponent of left progressive populist economics in the country, making some of those documentaries and movies that we talked about, doing a ton of social media, building a massive following on Twitter, being a columnist, being on cable TV all the time, and moving ever more to the left as the problems that he saw in the economy became more and more pronounced. And, you know, he went from a guy who had been a core of the Clinton team to an early endorser of Barack Obama to then a a huge backer of Bernie Sanders in both 2016 and 2020. And now in his 70s has built a huge following among people who are focused on the massive problem caused by the huge disparity of wealth and power in our society and how capitalism has caused that to happen and what you could do about it. If you ask Bob Reich, 
what explains Donald Trump, he will give you a very powerful, very passionate lecture on what is fucked up in our economy. And that's why uh, I wanted to have him come in today and talk on the podcast, because these problems that we're confronting, it's increasingly obvious to a lot of people that they are structural problems and not problems that any given politician or any given set of politicians or political parties can solve. That is the lesson of a lot of Bob Reich's oeuvre of what he has talked about in terms of what ails us. And so here we are, uh, the last episode of this podcast of Donald Trump's presidency, the first episode of this podcast of Joe Biden's presidency, and so far the only episode of this podcast to feature the one and only Robert B. Reich here on Hell and High Water. President Franklin Roosevelt set aside December 7th, 1941, as a day that will live in infamy. Unfortunately, we can now add January 6th, 2021, to that very short list of dates in American history that will live forever in infamy. This temple to democracy was desecrated. Its windows smashed, our offices vandalized, the world saw Americans' elected officials hurriedly ushered out because they were in harm's way. This will be a stain on our country not so easily washed away. The final, terrible, indelible legacy of the 45th President of the United States, undoubtedly our worst. So that was New York Senator Chuck Schumer, the incoming majority leader, Democratic leader, speaking in the aftermath of the insurrection at the Capitol, talking about how we are in, if not unprecedented times, we are in really unusual times. And Bob, welcome. Uh, and I guess this is where you and I should and can commence our discussion. Yes. And I mean, it's been an incredible, th this period, the 10 days or so since... I mean, really, the whole last four years, but the last 10 days, starting with the insurrection at the Capitol and then playing out every day since then has just gotten worse in some respects. The story, as bad as it was on the Wednesday when it took place, everything we now know about what happened, the story gets worse and worse the more we know. The degree of the severity of it, the, the mortal danger that the representatives and Mike Pence were in at the moment, the degree of planning, the degree of coordination, the possibility that it was an inside job with some collaboration or co-conspiracy with some Republican congresspeople. You know, Trump has now been impeached for a second time. And we are looking at right before the Wednesday inauguration of Joe Biden, Washington, D.C. is in total lockdown. Tens of thousands of, of military and quasi-military personnel in town. The town is being compared to the Baghdad green zone. And people are talking about the possibility of civil unrest, really riots, more insurrection, really, not just in Washington, D.C., but in all 50 state capitals around the country. That's what we're heading into right now. It feels to me like almost as bad a moment as anything I've covered. And, you know, I was not an adult in the midst of the 60s turmoil and wasn't able to cover the fallout from Vietnam or the demonstrations at the Chicago Convention in 68. So I didn't cover those things. But in my life, my reportorial life, this is as grim a moment as I've experienced. And I'm curious, you're a little older than me, Bob. How do you contextualize? I'm, I'm much older than you. <laughs> How do you contextualize this in your life of being part of, watching, analyzing, observing American politics? Well, John, much has been made of the comparisons between what we're going through politically this year and last year and 1968. And I was very politically active in 68 in terms of the anti-war movement and being involved with Eugene McCarthy and worked for Robert Kennedy. And after the Kennedy assassination and then Chicago and the rioting in Chicago, and then Richard Nixon's election. I, I really thought the country was over. I mean, I really had a sense that we had hit some sort of bottom from which we would never recover. And I'm not even sure we have recovered, but certainly 68 uh, is, is probably, is it as bad as it is right now? Uh, no, because at least in 1968, there was still some basic agreement among almost all Americans on the fundamental rules of the game, you know, that the Constitution was the supreme document we all agreed to, that in fact, uh, the rule of law, although a lot of people felt Vietnam violated that rule of law and Johnson violated that rule of law, 
that nevertheless the rule of law was an aspiration, as was certainly civil rights, voting rights. We all believed in those things. We all said that, uh, now, not everybody, I mean, George Wallace and the segregationists didn't, but they were fading very rapidly. And George Wallace had been shot. You remember, I mean, you don't, you weren't there, but take my word for it. It was a terrible year, but at least there was that minimal sense that the country had some guardrails still. And now I don't have that sense. I think that we are coming apart. And it's not just because of Trump. A lot of this started with Newt Gingrich. You know, I was there when Newt Gingrich came to town in terms of being Speaker of the House in 1995. Uh, And he, I think, was in many ways the start of this nastiness, this brutality, this nihilism, this sort of conspiracy-oriented near violence. And this is the culmination of New Gingrich. And and not near violence. You know, I've said to a few people this week that I remember waking up in Washington, D.C. in April of 1995 and learning about the bombing at the Murrah building in in Oklahoma City and getting on a plane and flying to Oklahoma City to, to cover the aftermath of that explosion. Timothy McVeigh blowing up the federal building, animated by very much the same kind of nihilistic, as you just said, anti-government sentiment that the right-wing version of of political violence and of ostensible revolution. Gingrich, of course, was a self-styled revolutionary. And flying out there and seeing that, what was at the time a shock? I mean, it it still is a shocking thing. 168 people killed in that explosion. And, And all of us got exposed to the notion that there was a quote, I put quotes around the militia movement then, the Michigan militia. First time you ever heard of that, right? Michigan now ground zero for a lot of this kind of right-wing extreme political violence. You know, the Terry Nickel, all that that stuff that we all, we got immersed in in that spring and summer, learning that there was this clenched fist and camouflage crowd out in America talking about the New World Order and the Trilateral Commission. And Pat Buchanan became the avatar for that group in the 96 campaign, right? There's, to me, a straight line between that and this, and it's been out there the whole time. Well, it's interesting, John. I mean, the Oklahoma City bombing, was, as far as we know, the work of one person, one deranged person. There was never uh, a suggestion that this was a part of a very large planned conspiracy. Right. This was before all of that. And domestic terrorism was a word that people did not use really very much at the time. But I think that we've moved to a very different kind. There may be a direct line, but I think it's, it's a direct line not from any kind of organized dissent, and certainly not from the Pat Buchanan right-wing populism. I mean, Buchanan was not calling for civil rights. He talked about pitchforks and so on, but that was economic populism. He was concerned about, you know, the working class kind of becoming revolutionaries if nothing was changed. I think personally, he might have been quite right. And there are some economic seeds of the old economic populism in what's been happening. But obviously, this is a completely different phenomenon. This is a large part of one of the major parties of the United States becoming seditious in the sense that, you know, 93% of Republicans in Congress voted against the certification of electors. I mean, what in the world is that? How, can, how do you describe that as anything short of a form of sedition? organized sedition by a major political party in the United States. I, I don't see any antecedent to that. I mean, you, you can go back to 1861, but uh, 1995 or even uh, Richard Nixon or anything that we have experienced in modern American history has no direct bearing upon what we're now seeing. Right. Well, except I would say this. I mean, the, my point is not that what was happening in that period, 1995, was anything like on the scale that we're seeing now. My point really was that when people started to look into McVeigh and they realized that he was flirting with this, you know, what now we think of as the the the, the survivalist militia movement, this the anti-government radical right that's out there, people in who like to carry firearms, who like to think that the government needs to be overthrown to do what it's unclear. But that that's the first time that I feel like I was exposed to that. That sentiment had more adherence out there in the world than one thought. And you're a thousand percent right that the Republican Party at that point, even under Gingrich, was not anything like 
the, the exponents of that view, no doubt about it. But I feel like what's happened over the course of these 25 years is that those sentiments animated by a whole bunch of things, long discussion to have here, you know, the rise of conspiracy theories on the right, the rise of how social media has helped spread them, right, the rise of right-wing media, it, not just in the on the internet, but in mainstream society. Again, I don't think Pat Buchanan and, and Donald Trump are the same, but if you think about, you know, a lot of what the things Pat Buchanan talked about back in 1995, 1996, you know, he wanted to build the wall. He was nativist. He was a white grievance candidate. He was uh, xenophobic. He was racist. He was anti-Semitic. There was a lot in that campaign that was an early echo of things that have now become mainstream. So I guess that's my point. This was fringe stuff back then, but it was the first time I ever encountered it. And now it's become the mainstream of the Republican Party. And that's where I think you're a thousand percent right in the sense that we've never seen anything like those fringe sentiments becoming the heart and soul of a one of the two major American political parties. That's what's so terrifying right now for a lot of people, right? Yeah. And it, it's, it's an interesting question I ask myself, John, and I'll ask you, I mean, would this have happened were it not for Donald Trump? That is, you could say the antecedents were there, that if you traced uh, a lot of the both economic populism, cultural populism, the anger that we saw starting really earlier than Pat Buchanan. I mean, you, you saw it uh, in the 90s or in the 1980s. But Donald Trump did something not only to exploit that, but to legitimize it, to yeah. enlarge it, to make it something that was politically powerful right. and essentially drove out and is driving out rational people from the Republican Party. And that is not just a tragedy. You know, it's a calamity. It's a political calamity. It means that, uh, what, what does it mean for the future? How can we go on having a rational political discourse with one of our major parties gone nuts? I mean, how can we, what's, what's the center? You know, we used to talk about the center. There's a right and there's a left. And there are moderates in the center and, you know, you're left of center, you're right of center. What's the center when you're dealing with cuckoos? Right. What's well, the center when it's democracy versus fascism? Yeah. Well, Where's that's the, the center? Yeah. I mean, I do think that's the right question. One of the things that you know, I've been talking to some of these people who track right-wing extremism and the, some of the people who were ringing the alarm bell before the insurrection on January 6th and saying, you know, this is coming, everybody get ready. And you see these people have been tracking those folks online. And one of the things they say is that what Trump has done is, is you know, there's that phrase, unite the right, right? That part of what his power has been is in a, what is basically a very factionalized, fractional kind of movement where you've got white supremacists over here and neo-Nazis over here and QAnon people over there. That In fact, a lot of them are very different from each other. They share a certain spiritual kinship, but they're not really all together. And what Trump did was unify them all. It was like he became the totem around which what was otherwise a less dangerous thing because it was kind of, you know, these small splinter groups. All of a sudden, they had a unifying leader or at least an aspirational symbol and that they and they all came together around Trump. So he was both an accelerant and someone who kind of created cohesion in and that world. And he did it not because he believes anything. No. Uh, that's the interesting, you know, historians are going to look back on this and say, well, how did he do it? You know, was he that in, insightful or powerful? Was he that much of a leader? Did, was he that strong? No, he did it because he is a crazy sociopathological narcissist who has no principles and no beliefs at all. And all he did was go around the country and tweet and, and just blather. And he responded where there was sensational response to him. In other words, it, it was it was it was like a uh, like it, like an empty gizmo. It's it's almost like an algorithm yeah. that has no actual mind of its own, but is simply responding where there is big response. Right, yeah. and he was getting big and big and bigger and bigger responses, and he would just uh, repeat things that got huge responses, and a lot of that was sensational and lies and craziness. And yes, he legitimized them, but they legitimized him. They gave him substance. He had none. Right. You know, one of the things that I think leads to the impeachment and that Democrats are very explicit about is that, you know, he wants to make it all about the speech that he gave on the ellipse. And he wants to say, my speech was totally appropriate. Well, the speech obviously was not appropriate. Obviously, it was an incitement to riot and an incitement to, to storm the Capitol. Anybody who's seen the speech, read the speech, was there. 
knows that that's true, but it's also obviously this was a long time coming. You look at what he's been saying for years and particularly in the period around this election, right? That he set up this frame of if I win, it's legitimate. If I don't win, it's a rigged election. It's illegitimate. And he repeated it over and over and over again. And his behavior post-election, starting on election night through till January 6th, was all pushing towards this. Did you feel like you saw this coming? Or did you see that thing when you looked up and saw the Capitol being ransacked? Were you shocked? Or did you think, well, well, of course, this is how this ends? Well, obviously, I was shocked. We were all shocked. But did I personally anticipate something like this? Yes. And it wasn't hard because you looked at his, as you just said, not only his, it wasn't just his post-election rhetoric, pre-election rhetoric. He was talking about mail-in ballots. If he loses, it will be because of the mail-in ballots, because there's so much fraud. And he was telegraphing all of this. And even before that, during his first impeachment, a lot of his cronies were saying, you know, if he is actually in danger of being thrown out of office, there's going to be civil war in this country. Roger Stone said there would be civil war. Uh, Others said there would be civil war. They kept on mouthing this refrain, don't you dare try to remove him from office, there will be civil war. And then actually the first glimpse of this was when he said there was so much fraud in the 2016 election. And he had this commission, you know, this faux, dumb, crazy commission that they couldn't find anything. He said there were 3 million votes that were fraudulent. You know, that was really the first clear hint that not only was he out of his gourd, but he would do anything, anything to both legitimize his own win, but also presumably stay in office. And then, John, there were also all of those little hints along the way where, you know, he not only loved Putin and other strongmen, but every time there was a suggestion that one of them was going to stay in power forever, he would just get all tingly hmm. and all excited. Well, you're going to stay in office forever. Hmm. Ho, ho, ho. And he'd make little jokes about it. Those weren't jokes. Yeah. And, you know, when he would say that he was going to stay, he made those little quote, I put big air quotes around the word joke, you know, the jokes about how he might want to stay for more than eight years. He might want to stay for 12 years or 16 years because part of his first term was stolen from him by the Democratic witch hunt. And you know, he'd be like, ha, ha, ha. And you're like, no, that's, he's really thinking about that. He thinks, you know, permanent power would be what he would really be after. And he also, you know, look at his behavior during the rallies. I think the rallies are more interesting than the tweets because the rallies actually gave him a taste of a certain kind of emotional power that fed his narcissism the way nothing else did. He could stand up there and say things, outrageous things, and people went bonkers, ballistic. And the more ballistic they went and the crazier he became. And it was that kind of interaction, I think, that was fundamental, foundational to all of this. You know, I spent a fair amount of time with him in the 2016 campaign before he determined by the end of that campaign that I was one of the enemies of the people and now has for the last four years referred to me exclusively inside the White House as that motherfucker, which is one of my great kind of like- That's one of the great honors. Great I, I thought badge he liked you because you had a German last name. Yes, Bob, I'm not kidding. He would say all the time that he liked me because I was from Germany. He would always be like, you're German. How much German? I like German. He's starting to like Trump. You're starting to like Trump. You're starting to like Trump. This was all the whole discourse would always be about how I would say things on television about how the Republican Party was racist and xenophobic and there was a big market for racism and xenophobia. And he would say, you're starting to understand Trump. He would say this to me and then he'd say, and I, you know, we're going to get along really well. You're German all the time. And Diana, my wife would say, that can't really be true. And then I introduced her to him at the Iowa caucus in 2016. And he walked up and said, I love your husband. You know, I love me. We're both German. And Diana, like her jaw dropped. She thought I was, I've been joking for months about this German thing. And it's crazy because that way of just talking with people is your right. It gets to the pathological narcissism and the insecurity, which is that it's all about you're starting to love me. You got to love me. He wants, needs to hear someone say how great he is. And when you think about amplifying that with these genuinely giant rallies, thousands of people coming out and, and being in his thrall, the drug, man, it's like he's a drug addict and an aspiring dimwitted Mussolini at the same time. And you could see it at every one of those rallies, how much the visceral sense of having everybody love him was yeah. 
the the thing he craved more than anything. And sending those people to the Capitol was the ultimate. It's almost as good as the applause lines is go to the Capitol, storm the Capitol for me. Those are my people doing this thing I want. That's like he loves them. And he says he loves those people. I mean, that expression, they're good people. I love you. That love, that expression of love, that's the core connection. They love me. So he loves them. It, it, It marks everything that he has done. It's this mutuality. If you hate me, then I hate you. If you love me, I love you. That's the definition. It's not Democrats versus Republicans. It's the people who hate him versus the people who love him. If you love him, he would say, you're me. You're part of me. If you hate me, then you're part of them. It's completely true. And so here's the question, though, that it raises, right? You started this by asking the question, would all of this have happened if it wasn't for Trump? Like Trump somehow was an accelerant and and a coagulant and all of these various things, right? So he's about to leave a few days from now. I don't know what's going to happen between now and, and Joe Biden's inauguration, but Joe Biden's going to be inaugurated. Donald Trump's going to leave. He acknowledges that now. He wants to have a 21-gun salute and the military and a red carpet and all that shit, but he's going to get on the plane. He's going to leave. He's going to go to Mar-a-Lago. There's going to be a trial in the Senate over his impeachment. And there are two questions. I, how First of all, how important do you think it is that Trump has been impeached for what he did and that he be convicted for what he did? How important to precedent, democratic norms, our institutions, the hope of trying to put this shit back together again? How important is that, number one? And do you think that Trump gone, that that's the first step towards coming back to something that resembles normalcy? Or do you think things are so fucked that it doesn't matter now? Trump has let the genie out of the bottle. And now, whatever the solutions are, they don't have really anything to do with him now. Well, I think, number one, he does have to be convicted and removed and prohibited from holding any public office again. And I think that that's a moral duty of our representatives in Congress. And I think it's a moral duty of uh, the United States. We can't have a president who lied repeatedly about the results of an election, denied them, and summon people to the Capitol and organize them and then basically said, march on the Capitol and stop this election. You cannot not remove that person from the presidency. You can't have history simply end with him being impeached but not convicted and leaving for Mar-a-Lago. Richard Nixon is one thing, John, but an actual attempted coup on the United States, an attack on the fundamental institutions of the United States government, you can't let that stand. It would be a worsening cancer on our system. Right. And if you're interested in the integrity and the truth of our entire governmental system and democracy, you can't let it stand. Right. It's vitally important. It has to be, you know, I, I keep hearing reports that Joe Biden would like to get this just out of the way as fast as possible, or not let it happen at all. I mean, just get on with his confirmations of cabinet, get on with his big stimulus program and everything else. I hope that's not Joe Biden's attitude, because I'll tell you, if I were Joe Biden, I would say to myself, one of the most important things I've got to do is to renew faith in democracy. That's part of my mission. That's part of my agenda. And one of the ways of doing that is to hold everybody accountable who has attacked democracy. Is this beyond Trump now? You know, to what extent is this now a a beast that is not independent from Trump, but is it, there's many people who I think are under the impression that if you could accomplish what you just accomplished, he's going to leave office. We convict him in the Senate, say he can't run for public office again. This is clearly what McConnell thinks on some level is this is a way to purge him from the Republican Party. If we can get him out of our lives, we can start oh, no, to- no, again. no, 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 no. That's absolutely silly and naive. I mean, Trumpism, let's call it Trumpism yeah. rather than Trump. Trumpism, this kind of perverse, upside down, weird, kind of paranoid sense of parallel universe in which facts don't matter, logic doesn't matter, kind of attack on the entire 18th century enlightenment encapsulated in Trumpism. I I think that's going to live on. It's not going to be as powerful, but it will be more powerful than it was before Trump. It will take years and years and years to constrain it, to tame it, if it can be tamed. I, I mean, it may be that this is out of the bottle forever. There are 
Obviously, politicians that want to take advantage of what Trump has done and model themselves in Trump's image. I mean, Ted Cruz uh, is in some sense more dangerous than Trump because he's smarter than Trump. Uh, but he's not as diabolical as Trump in the sense that he's not as much of a barn burner. Right. He'll say almost anything, but he won't say anything. Yes. Trump would say absolutely anything. Uh, Josh Hawley also obviously has his ambitions set on 2024 and is willing to go pretty far in the Trump direction. But I don't think he's willing or able to go as far as Trump in terms of uh, demagogic craziness. Right. And Trump Jr., uh, I mean, who knows? Uh, there are other Trumps as far as the eye can see. <laughs> but hopefully, you know, there's also simultaneously a public revulsion that right. is set in that is very large, much larger than I anticipated, yeah. honestly, including corporate America, including Twitter and, right. and, and Facebook. I, I hope that that revulsion doesn't stop. I, I, I hope it's a permanent fixture right. in the United States consciousness. Okay, that's a very good place for us to take a quick break, both because this is a commercial enterprise and we have to um, have some commercials in order to continue our existence. And also, it's a good transition to, um, we're going to talk about your book, The System, and and talk about some of these companies that are part of the oligarchy and how they reacted to this moment. We're going to kind of talk about the book and talk about how you know your views that is laid out in the book snap into this moment and and the way that corporate america right now is reacting to this crisis in american democracy right now when we come back with robert reich on hell and high water the mobs that attacked that the congress remember they scared democrats and republicans that was a scary thing for the folks that are in the in the capital to be going through so uh may, maybe it'll make us a better country with a little more civil discourse and an understanding that a democracy, you know, a democracy by its nature, you have to compromise. So that's Jamie Dimon, the head honcho, J.P. Morgan Chase, one of the great vampire squids, not of Goldman Sachs, but a great vampire squid <laughs> in his own right, um, as a, a, one of the bankers, one of the oligarchs, one of the fat cats who runs our modern day economic system. And we're back with Bob Rice here on Hell and High Water. And I want to talk about Jamie Dimon in a second, because Jamie Dimon features in a very central way in a book that my friend Bob published in March of last year, The System, which has the compelling subtitle, I believe, The System, Why It's Fucked and Why It's Unfixable. No, it's The System. <laughs> Not, quite. Not quite. Who rigged it and how we fix it? I know. I thought I'd just be funny there. Now, I want to get to Jamie Dimon, because that was Jamie Dimon reacting to what happened at the Capitol. And I want to come back, because he's important in your book. But before we do that, I want to say this. For those unaware, I have a long, glorious relationship with this man, Bob Reich, which dates back to another book that Bob worked on back in the late 1980s when we first met. I was a graduate student. Bob was teaching at the Kennedy School of Government. Bob wrote this book called The Work of Nations, which came out in 1990, maybe 1991, and a book that I slaved you know, for no pay, no gratitude, nothing. But I no. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You were a graduate student. You're not supposed to get any pay or gratitude. In fact, that's the way the hierarchy works, folks. Well, there you go. That's your that's your vision of enlightened capitalism, right there, buddy. And I taught you everything you everything you know. <laughs> everything, pretty much. I poured my heart and soul into that book, and the reality was that that book became very influential. Its analysis of the economy at that time, and the as globalization was rising and the digital economy was just starting to really kick in its analysis of what to do about some of the the promise and the peril of those changes and what public policy should do to meet that moment became the kind of blueprint for an economic document called putting people first which became the key economic program theory of the case of the Clinton campaign in 1992 and it was what propelled Bob into government and made him a longtime friend of Bill Clinton's made him secretary of labor so i lay all that out because Bob, I want before we get to the system, I want your view of the world and the economy itself. All of it changed a lot from 1990 when we finished wrapping up the work of nations to 2020 when the system gets published. This is a long introduction to the big question, which is talk about what's different between the economy as you saw it then and the economy as you see it now and how the economy has changed. Therefore, your analysis has changed. And we're going to dig down into this, but talk about all that big arc of these 30 years, because if you read the two books side by side, it would be hard to believe they're written by the same guy. Well, they weren't. Uh, they're written by different people, <laughs> at least 
at least, uh, let's say, one was a younger man and one was an older man. And I wrote the first one when I was young and naive. But I, I think that the country and the economy and the structure of the political economy changed dramatically because in the 1980s, it was fair to say that the beginnings of widening inequality of income and wealth were due largely to two big factors. One was globalization and the second was technological change. And in that book, I talked about what policies had to be adopted in order to respond to globalization and technological change by giving American workers better education, better training, improving infrastructure, all the public investments that people needed to have a chance in this new globalized high technology economy. I, I think that I was right then. I think you mean we were well, right then, but that's okay. We, yeah, you mean you as my graduate <laughs> student who just did peddling research. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the world changed. My views changed, but also the political economy changed in, in a very significant way. And that is inequality kept on widening dramatically. But it wasn't just technology and technological change. It wasn't just globalization. It wasn't even just the decline of unionization and unions. It was also power, political power. That is, um, over the course of those years, starting in the 1970s, actually, I didn't really see much of it in the 1970s and 80s. It began to happen. I didn't really talk about it in that book, The Work of Nations. But over the subsequent decades, it became very apparent that money, big money, money from financial institutions, big banks, money from big corporations was inundating our political system in both parties, making it difficult for everybody else's voice to be heard, getting bailouts, particularly if you were a big bank and you gambled away and created a financial crisis but also right up until the coronavirus crisis, where the biggest companies got big, big bailouts. In fact, right up till a few weeks ago, when Congress passed the most recent COVID relief bill, and there were $200 billion worth of bailouts and handouts for everything for big corporations and the top 1%, including you know the tax break for three martini lunches. I mean, where'd that come from? Uh, in other words, power and wealth have concentrated dramatically over the last 25, 30 years, more than I have ever anticipated. And wealth is power, power is wealth. And that has created, in turn, a great deal of the inequality we're now seeing. In other words, it's a vicious cycle. You get more power and wealth at the top. It changes the rules of the game to give itself more power and wealth leaving everybody else out. So for the last 40 years, the wages of most workers in America have been stagnant, mm -hmm. if you adjust for inflation. Their jobs are less secure than they've ever been. They have become fodder for a demagogue like Donald Trump, or before that started to be Pat Buchanan. But Donald Trump, I don't think, could have found the responsive cord that he did in mostly the white working class, mostly the bottom two thirds without college degrees, mostly people who are paid on an hourly wage, uh, were it not for these structural changes in the economy. That's a very good roadmap from how we got from 1990 to 2020 and what changed. Now I want to introduce Jamie Dimon into our conversation because Jamie Dimon, who we heard a second ago, serves as kind of the framing device or the the kind of the impetus in some ways. Uh, an exchange that you two had kind of sets up the book and he becomes kind of a, if not a villain, a foil in the book in a way, right? So just tell that story of how you wrote something, he responded, you guys had a conversation and then he pops up throughout the book as you're not by temperament someone who's like trying to like um, to tear the guy down, but you are pointing at some of the hypocrisies and some of the the failings of someone of that station that is kind of illustrative of some of the problems that you see in this world in which the primary division is not a division between left and right, but a division between kind of the oligarchs and the oligarchy on one side and democracy on the other. I chose Jamie Dimon as my, you're right, foil, not villain, but foil. And there's a big difference yep. because he so exemplified the system. That is, it's not a matter of there being bad people. It's a matter of it being a bad system. 
And these people in the system are responding to all of the incentives of that system that have been uh, accrued over time. Uh, they don't even necessarily understand every bit and piece and where it came from and every historic antecedent. They are doing the best job they can, most of them. I mean, there are crooks, John, yeah, obviously. Sure. But Jamie Dimon is not a crook. He's done some things that I'm sure he's not proud of. But to critique American capitalism by going after particular people is a very uh, shallow critique. But Jamie Dimon is fascinating because he's a Democrat. He styles himself a Democrat. He styles himself a liberal Democrat, a progressive liberal Democrat. He has got his bank, the biggest bank in the United States, to put money into poor areas. He advances the cause of racial justice. He says all the right things. And he is a, a complete hypocrite. But I don't think he knows necessarily how much of a hypocrite he is. And I think that he's, he's among the best of his ilk. If you took Jamie Dimon out and put somebody else who was as competent yeah. and as moral as Jamie Dimon is, they do exactly the same thing. And they would, again, they'd say a lot of things that may reflect their values, but their bank and their institutions and the business roundtable that he runs would uh, be just as hypocritical. So, so he says in the, the sound that we played of him, right, he says, the mob that attacked Congress scared Democrats and Republicans. It was scary for them, but it may make us a better country with a little more civil discourse in reaction to it. You know, democracy is all about compromise, you know, very kind of CEO-ish kind of thing to say. Democrats and Republicans, both scared. And, you know, hopefully this will get them back to their senses and we'll have some good bipartisan compromise and some good discussions going forward. My sense is that, you know, when you think about one of the things that's happened is something different than that, which is that's kind of like the usual corporate bipartisan patter that you want to hear is after moments like this, you know, unity, come together, bipartisanship, compromise, moderation, blah, blah, blah. But there's been another thing that's happened really in the wake of this, which has been a lot of big companies have come forward and said, fuck no, man, Donald Trump is dead to us. And as you pointed out before, Republicans who voted against the certification of the legitimate electoral college count, we're not going to give money to those people anymore. And I saw you tweeting and hashtagging defund the seditionists, right? So just give me a sense of what your view is about what's happening, the corporate response to this, and not just Jamie Dimon's, but some of these other companies. I mean, it sure scared the shit out of Kevin McCarthy. He's running around terrified about yeah. what the donor impact is going to be if the Republicans are abandoned, the Republican seditionists, which is most of those in the House, frankly. If corporations run away from those guys and aren't willing to write checks anymore, that is a fucking problem for, for House Republicans and for the leadership of Kevin McCarthy. It's fascinating, John, and it's a very important moment. The distinction needs to be drawn between the majority of companies who have decided that they're going to pause their funding for everybody. They just say, well, we're just going to reconsider everything. But then there, there is this minority of companies. And big companies, I mean, we're talking about AT&T and Dow and Marriott and some very big hitters who have said, no, we are going to specifically withdraw our funding to those who voted against the certification of the Biden electors. We are going to actually make a statement with our funding that we believe in democracy and we're going to fund democracy. In effect, we're going to defund the anti-democrats, right. the people who are trying to strike out against democracy. That's a fascinating movement because under what authority are they doing that? By what authority? I mean, they don't have any public authority. Nobody elected them. Their shareholders, I mean, you know, if you're a shareholder of AT&T, and a lot of Americans are, they were not consulted on this. Right. It, it's just a fascinating moment in terms of corporate power almost as fascinating as Twitter and Facebook deciding they're going to deny Trump a forum. I mean, under what authority are these people operating? I, I like the fact that they're doing it personally, but it, it exposes this whole underpinning of lack of, of the power without, without any responsibility, power that is unaccountable. I mean, one of the things I talk about repeatedly in the book is how the system really has got to a point where it has given this unaccountable power to big corporations and these big banks and a lot of wealthy people. 
without even knowing that we've done it. Right. Yes. And that's the irony, John, is that that is the antithesis of democracy. In other words, what AT&T and Dow and Marriott and all these other big companies are saying is we are not going to fund people who are insurrectionists, who are seditionists. But at the same time, our act of defunding them exposes our power over the entire system. Right. Right. And so we are the ones who really are culpable in violating the underpinnings of our democracy. Well, and the exact same thing you're talking about is the phenomenon and the dynamic exposed by the, the deplatforming of Trump from Twitter and other social media platforms, right? You know, many people have pointed out over the last four years that Trump routinely would violate the terms of service of Twitter, like that a normal person saying the shit Trump said would have been thrown off the platform, right? That there was people begging Twitter to do something like what it's done now, what it started to do in the final days of the election, and then what it finally did in this instance. And it's clear that they saw the the possibility of more violence and incitement and murder and loss of life and bloodshed that they didn't want any part of that, both as a matter of good morals, but also of good business and corporate responsibility and shareholder capitalism and all that, right? I mean, it's at least a little arbitrary, right? By the same, on the basis that they kicked Trump off the platform, they could have kicked him off a year ago or two years ago or three years ago. It's, it is a fundamentally arbitrary choice, and because it's fundamentally arbitrary, it exposes the thing you're talking about, except in the realm of social media instead of just like corporate America, just how powerful and unaccountable these people That's are. Right. And they're making these determinations on the basis of things that have that are, again, fundamentally arbitrary and self-interested, not really according to principle or certainly responsiveness to any kind of democratic norm. In fact, there's no democratic norm here. Power that is unaccountable. Now, you know, another irony upon irony is that Fox News at least is responding to the market. You know, Fox News, as reprehensible, as outrageous as Fox News has been, and certainly Fox News has been partly, you know, complicit in all of this, it can step back and say, well, we're accountable to our shareholders and to the market. That's not what's... (laughs) I mean, it may be what Twitter could do or Facebook could do in a kind of convoluted way. It's not what Dow Chemical or AT&T or Marriott can do in terms of withdrawing their funding. They're not doing it because they're responsive to any market. Maybe, you know, in some very, very general sense, they might be able to say to themselves, well, you know, our public is not going to like it if we lose democracy, but it's a big stretch. Bob, your big problem with you is I could talk to you all night. So I'm going to take a break real quick here. We're going to, again, just just to keep in the kind of spirit of corporate fealty, we're going to sell some soap flakes with the commercials. And then we're going to come back and talk about Joe Biden with Bob Reich here on Hell and High Water. Just since this pandemic began, the wealth of the top 1% of the nation has grown roughly $1.5 trillion since the end of last year four times the amount for the entire bottom 50% of American wage earners. Some 18 million Americans are still relying on unemployment insurance. Some 400,000 small businesses have permanently closed their doors. And it's not hard to see that we're in the middle of the once-in-several-generations economic crisis with the once-in-several-generations public health crisis. The crisis of deep human suffering is in plain sight, and there's no time to waste. We have to act, and we have to act now. So I asked for the Joe Biden sot to be played, and I'm pretty sure that was Joe Biden. It sounded like Joe Biden, but if I read the the words, especially the, the first words in that sound, the part where he says, just since this pandemic began, the wealth of the top 1% of the nation has grown roughly $1.5 trillion since the end of last year, four times the amount of the entire bottom 50% of American wage earners. When I read that on paper, it sounds like Bernie Sanders or Bob Reich. So Bob, I ask you, someone who was a, a big Bernie Sanders fan in 2016 and in 2020, someone who was not a Joe Biden bandwagon dude but I'm sure is now hoping for Joe Biden's success as we go forward. Like, what's going on with Joe Biden? Has he been transformed? Has Bernie influenced him? Do you think a genuine change is going on by which Biden is is going to advocate a more populist economics, number one? Or do you think that his more moderate instincts will come back to the surface when it comes time to start trying to make deals on Capitol Hill? You know, that's the Joe Biden we've known before when we thought about Joe Biden and his, his instincts on policy. Well, I think that the Democratic leadership 
overall has become more economically populist. And it was inevitable. Uh, I think uh, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren led the way. And they did so not because it was becoming popular, although that was part of it, but they did so also because, hey, it's reality. I mean, <laughs> the country is in right now, for example, this horrible pandemic, and yet the richest 600 Americans have made out like bandits. The wealth that they've accumulated since the pandemic began is so much that they could give out $3,000 checks to every American and still be as wealthy as they were before the pandemic started. And they were pretty rich before the pandemic. (laughs) I mean, just wrap your head around that for a minute. I mean, if you were Joe Biden, if you're anybody who has any sense of sensitivity at all to facts, that's going to blow you away. And I, I think the the American rational, responsible politician is beginning to move in a direction that we might call economic populism. And that's Joe Biden too. Whether that translates into any dramatic, bold policies is another thing altogether. He took a pretty big swing, at least rhetorically, about what he now says he wants in terms of COVID relief, in terms of economic stimulus. I mean, there are two questions. One is, do you look at what he has put on the table and think that is adequate and serious? And then the second question, which is, do you think that that is just rhetorical posturing or or do you think there's a chance we could actually get that? I think that it is serious. That is the almost $2 trillion stimulus bill that he will introduce. Uh, I think it's serious. It's serious in terms of it's appropriate to the size and magnitude of the problem we now face, both with COVID and getting the economy going again. Is it serious with regard to the restructuring of the economy entirely, reducing inequality, getting wages back, growing again for the bottom two-thirds of Americans, dealing with global climate change, dealing with all of the other fundamental problems, deep problems that have been exposed. No, it's not. I mean, if he were serious about that, and maybe he will be, but you're talking about magnitudes beyond 1.9 trillion. You know, you're talking about 5 trillion. You're talking about putting America on essentially a war footing and adopting, if not a wealth tax, something that is close to a wealth tax in terms of the revenue that it generates from people who are doing very well. So do you think Joe Biden, I mean, someone who you have watched for a long time, both in and out of government, do you think Joe Biden has economic policy because he believes in a theory of the case or no? No, I don't think so. I, I think that like most intelligent, responsible politicians, and they are there and I know them, he works inductively rather than deductively. That is, he doesn't have a theory. He doesn't have a whole set of principles. He doesn't have a an economic view. He works from the particular, and he works from that particular backwards toward maybe some principles, uh, if his staff can come up with the principles. Uh, it's very much like a judge who doesn't really have a theory of law, but whose law clerks are told by the judge what outcome the judge wants, and they furiously try to construct a theory for that judge or justice. And that's what's going on, I'm almost sure, with Joe Biden. I know many of the people who are working him and for him, advising him on economics. They're good people. I know Janet Yellen. I I think she'll do a, a great job. But all of these people, like most people who advise politicians on Capitol Hill, they are ready and willing to respond to the politicians' needs and perspectives for what needs to happen at a certain point in time, but they're not going to give a whole worldview. Right. As we head into this moment, you know, 2021, a rampaging, ravaging pandemic, a ruinous recession, a year of huge unrest over racial justice what is now clearly a chasmic political divide between the left and the right, you know, civil unrest, insurrection on the menu, all of that, huge challenges. I mean, huge challenges, like the kind of challenges that you normally associate with the president coming into office during wartime, right? Do you look at Biden with, I mean, obviously with great relief that Donald Trump will be gone. We all feel that. Most of us feel that. Most of us who are sane feel that. But do you feel optimism? Do you feel 
a sense of hope about what's about to transpire? Or do you have a sense of that, that Joe Biden is adequate or inadequate to the scale of the task before I, him? I really do have a sense of nauseous optimism. Um, <laughs> you know, my stomach turns because the scale of the problems are so large. I think Joe Biden could very well uh, be exactly the right person to handle them and to move the nation. Uh, his rhetorical skills are not, let's put it this way, are not Promethean. I mean, he can't do the equivalent of an FDR fireside chat. He's not able to summon with his rhetorical flourishes a great deal of gravitas and excitement and, and power. But listen, uh, there have been other great politicians who also uh, have not been great rhetoricians. I mean, the issue is one of courage and insight and, and ability. My only worry honestly, is that he is familiar with an old politics that is dying. And that old politics is one of making deals with Republicans and kind of being chummy and friendly and the inside Senate stuff. That's gone. If it's not totally gone, uh, he's going to discover that most of it is gone. And this is not, you said it was left versus right. It's not left versus right anymore. Really no, I said isn't. the opposite. I said, I said your argument is that it's no longer left versus right. Yeah, it's it, now it really, it, oligarchy it, versus democracy. Or democracy right. versus fascism. I don't know how you want right. to talk about it, but it well, is. And, and on the political side, anti-establishment versus establishment, you know, there's a bunch of different ways to look at this, but none of it boils down to just straight up left versus right. No, no, it's not left versus right. And I, my fear is that Biden is still looking at it through the left-right prism and says to himself, well, I'm going to be sort of maybe center left, you know, just right. a little bit center left. And that's not going to do it. Because he's going to just find that the Republicans in Congress are not going to budge. They are not only not going to budge, they're going to steamroll him. They're going to try to not physically assassinate him, God forbid, but they are going to try to make sure that he loses the midterms in 2022. And they are all going to be moving as fast as they can toward doing character assassination, character assassination, make sure that you understand that I mean character assassination on uh, Kamala Harris. I mean, yeah. she's the one who is in their sights in terms of uh, somebody who's, who's got to be figuratively. Please make sure everybody understands that I'm talking figuratively, taken yeah. down. Well, and I ask you this question. I mean, I think everybody who was covering as a journalist and, and paying attention to the 2020 election felt a couple of things, one of which was that Joe Biden throughout his 2019 was a very weak candidate. And yet there was a theory that you heard espoused a lot from people, which was, yeah, he's got a lot of weaknesses. He's lost his fastball. He's not that strong. He's probably not really where the center of the gravity in the, in the Democratic Party is anymore, which is more progressive. But he may be the most electable of them. He may be the only one who could beat Donald Trump. And I will say that I was never certain I, about how that would all play out. And who knows if certain things had happened, Elizabeth Warren had been the nominee, maybe she would have ignited a different kind of movement and she would have done even better than Joe Biden did. But the reality is he still got more votes than any Democratic nominee in the history of the country. When Donald Trump got 10 million votes than he got, more votes than he got in 2016, you can make a pretty good argument that it may be that Biden was the only person who could have beaten Trump. You can make an argument that that's true. Mm -hmm. But the core of the argument was... And there were just enough people to give him a, a substantial majority in the popular vote and a narrow majority in the Electoral College around the notion that the country has been torn in half by Donald Trump, the first president that we've seen in our lifetimes who ran the country on the basis of division rather than even getting gloss on trying to unify us. And whatever else we are as a country, there, there are tens of millions of people who want the country to come together and not be ripped apart, who wanted, at least aspirationally, to vote for a unifying figure. That was what he bet on politically, and it paid off. He won. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But now, as we head into this period with insurrection and civil unrest and rioting and guns and everything else, right? There's part of you that goes, how is that guy on the kind of airy, glossy promise of healing the soul of the nation, bring the country back together in the face of what we're seeing right now and the tactical things that you just talked about? And Mitch McConnell, who basically says, well, the route back to my power is to obstruct this guy. And to delegitimize his vice president and everything else, right? It seems like you're on a collision course between reality and the campaign thematics that drove Biden, that got Biden this job. And I'm not even nauseously optimistic. A guy like that is a cautiously optimistic, nauseously optimistic. I just see a, a collision of kinds coming here in which, you know, 
this may all end in tears. Let me make the opposite case, John. Okay. And, and I'm trying to convince myself even as I speak to you. Yeah. Biden is aggressively non-incendiary. Yeah. That is, if you try to find somebody in style, in rhetoric, in, in terms of his history, who he is, the kind of people he surrounds himself with, he is the anti-Trump. He's the antithesis yes. of the incendiary divisive character. And so the argument I'd make is that if we have any chance at all of coming together, even slightly, yeah. he's the perfect person. Right. Well, and I think, you know, to be more precise, he's the embodiment of empathy, right? He's the, the ultimate empath, someone who's had a, a life riddled with tragedy and pain and failure against the least empathic, least human, most kind of thuggish, outlandishly narcissistic president we've ever had to see part of what was appealing about Biden to some people was that this is a guy who's been who's been broken in some points of his life and who managed to put it back together and that he always is there. That human thing of the embrace, finding the broken people in the crowd and pulling them to him. There's something incredibly powerful at a visceral level about that, about Biden. And maybe you're right. Maybe that is the thing that helps us get through this moment. I think it's the only thing that helps us. The question to my mind is, does he have long enough? Can he do it in four years? How much turmoil and violence and sacrifice and blood are we going to have to endure? Right. And I think that he, as long as he maintains his kind of equipoise, his steadiness, his non-incendiary qualities, I think, and his empathy, you're absolutely right about that, his, his antithesis of narcissism, uh, as long as he maintains that, we have a chance. But I don't know what that means exactly in terms of policies. Right. I mean, I talked to you a moment ago about the kind of policies I think are necessary in terms of uh, really jobs, wages, gigantic uh, scale. But uh, I don't know that a mild-mannered kind of anti-incendiary approach is going to get there. I, I, right. I almost see in my mind, you know, Lyndon Johnson browbeating yeah. people. Well, right. that's not Joe Biden. I'm going to end this discussion. I know you have to go, but you again provided me with a transition, which I appreciate. I sometimes like to end these discussions with a, a little conceit that I'll refer to as, if I were king, you know, if I gave you all the power in the world and let you have fiat and let you do whatever you wanted, what would you do? And now if I were king or president, the thing that I would do is I would call Bob Reich on the phone and I would say, Bob, help me. I don't know what the fuck I'm doing. I need someone to tell me what to do economically in terms of how to solve these large structural problems that we face. And you would give me policies and I would then go out in Lyndon Johnson fashion and advocate for them. Like exactly that image that you just had in your mind. That would be me. I'm tall like Lyndon Johnson, you know, same thing. I'd put on the 10 gallon hat and I'd go and like, you know, browbeat and wheedle and cajole. So this is kind of like if instead of if you were king, if you were called upon by Joe Biden in the same way, Bob, what should I do? Tell me three policies, concrete policies that I should advance and advocate for that would solve the big structural problems in our economy. Bob, what are those three things? Tell me now and I'll do them. Go. Well, one, I would make it much easier to form labor unions. I, I wasn't convinced before I became labor secretary, but I have been convinced that you've got to have countervailing power in this country and labor unions are essential. Secondly, along the same lines, I would make antitrust enforcement a big deal. I mean, I pour huge resources into breaking up big concentrations of wealth. And thirdly, I'd use fiscal and monetary policy. Now, every time I say that, people's eyes glaze over, but you know what I mean. Yeah. Macroeconomic policies to dramatically just step on the accelerator in terms of this economy. There they are. Those are the three. Had, when you said fiscal and monetary policy, I mean, I, my eyes didn't glaze over. I almost passed out. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like know, I almost fell over know, sideways in my chair. A policy that I was tempted to say, but it will put everybody so quickly to sleep. I use what I'm about to say as a way of putting myself to sleep, actually. Yeah. It's the best. I mean, it's better than you know anything you can get over the counter. It's called the earned income tax credit. Mm. Yeah, EITC. See, you've baby. already you've already gone to sleep. I EITC. No, I'm a big fan of the EITC. Yeah. That's I love that one. Reverse income tax. Yeah. Booyah. Um, Bob Reich, you are a, a a man, a myth, a legend. That the sparkle is still in the eye. You know, the glint is still 
uh, in the earlobes. The hair has gone white. The beard John has gone Heilman, white. John Heilman, you don't even have hair, so don't talk to me. No, about white I'm just hair. saying you've turned into kind of a, a Santa Clausian figure. And you're too tall, and you still a, are. And a I Santa Clausian socialist. <laughs> you know, there was a period of time when Bob and I were talking about doing a television show together called The Long and the Short of You know, it. I, I started doing that with Alan Simpson. Yeah, how are so the popular. ratings? How are the ratings for you and Alan Simpson? We got with dozens of people. Dozens. <laughs> um, thank you for doing this. It's great <laughs> no, to see you. Thank you. Hell and High Water is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thanks again to my friend Bob Reich for being here. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a nice rating for us in the Apple Podcast app. I am your host and the executive editor of The Recount, John Heilman. Grace Weinstein is a co-creator of Hell and High Water. Aaliyah Jackson engineered this podcast. Justin Chermel and Diana Roten handled the research. Stephanie Stender is our post-producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Fidel Castro-Russell is our executive producer. <laughs>